We're all familiar with the paintings of Claude Monet. We see reproductions of his water lilies on everything from umbrellas to handbags, scarves, and dorm room posters. But did you also know that Monet was once considered a trailblazing rebel and that his works were originally thought to be unbelievably ugly and vulgar? And I'm sure you probably know the tale of Vincent van Gogh's suicide, but you may not be aware that there's pretty compelling evidence that the artist didn't die by his own hand, but was accidentally killed or even murdered. I'm Stephen Roach, and this is the Makers and Mystics podcast, season eight, episode three. In this episode, we're going to talk with author and art curator, Jennifer Dassel, whose new book, Art Curious, explores these and other strange stories from art history. Jennifer Dassel is the curator of modern and contemporary art at the North Carolina Museum of Art in Raleigh, North Carolina. And she's the host of the independent podcast, Art Curious, which she started in 2016 and was named one of the best podcasts by O, the Oprah Magazine and PC Magazine. Jennifer's book, Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History, takes a colorful look at the world of art history and reveals some of the strangest, funniest, and most fascinating stories behind the world's great artists and masterpieces. In this episode, I talk with Jennifer about some of the stories found in her book and why she feels that art history is important for modern creators to explore. You can find links to Jennifer's podcast and to her book in the show notes of this episode. This is my interview with author and art curator, Jennifer Dassel. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me on the Makers and Mystics podcast today. It's an honor to have you. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yes, and it's also good to have a fellow podcaster on the show today. <laughs> oh, for sure. We are we are a unique group of people, definitely. It's true. And for our listeners, tell us about Art Curious, because that's I've listened to several of your episodes, and I love what you're doing there. I'd love to introduce our community to you. Thank you. Sure. So it's a show that I began in about 2016, and it's exploring what I call the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. Beautiful. So uh, back, it's funny, during my day job, I'm a curator of art at the North Carolina Museum of Art in Raleigh, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And it always seems like I meet two camps of people, and there are very rarely people who sit in the middle. I either meet people who really love art and art history and just are so passionate about it, or I meet people who say, you know, I'm only here because I want to go to the restaurant and I hear it has the greatest burger in town, or (laughs) my grandma dragged me here and I'm just trying to be nice to her. I don't really like art. And I always say to people, I totally get both sides because I used to not be interested in art myself, had no background, not even an iota of a clue about how to talk about (laughs) or even really look at art. And I always told people, you know, for me, what got me interested were 
were these stories. And for me, the weirder or just funnier stories of art history, those were the ones that really gripped me and made me want to learn more. So that was one of the reasons I started the podcast. I just wanted to share these stories that you might not necessarily get to hear in an art history class, but might entice you to really explore those kind of hidden stories about art. One thing that I think we share in common is I love the surrealist, the Dadaist. I love all of the weird stuff, the things that make you turn your head sideways a little bit and think outside of a, of a linear perspective on art. <laughs> Me too, for sure. I love the Dadaist and surrealist, so I'm with you. <laughs> yes. Well, you just released a brand new book that's very much on brand with what you just described called Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History. And I've had the opportunity to read through this book and it's it's absolutely, it, it's such a fun book. And I love the way you present it in a very fun manner, but also in a very deep and well-researched format. And, and so I'm excited to talk to you about this book as well. Thank you. I'm thrilled. It's been it's been a dream. So I'm so excited to talk about it. Now, how long have you researched for this book? Because there's quite a bit of information in this. I'd imagine it took you a while. It did. So I I was very lucky in that I received the uh, book. Uh, request from Penguin Books, my publisher. They wanted to go ahead and publish the book. And that happened in very late 2018. And I had about a year to write the entire manuscript. So almost all of 2019, I spent uh, really writing a lot of the time, which for me was a lot of really early mornings and late nights, and then a lot of weekend writing because I do have a full-time job on top of everything else. Uh, so it was, it was a lot of work, but it was so fun because I got to explore these stories that I only maybe knew a little bit about tangentially. So I got to learn as much, I hope, as the reader does. Um, a few of the stories in there, I would say maybe four of the stories in there were ones that I had previously covered on the podcast. So I was able to retool and really expand some things that I had already had a good amount of research on. But the rest of it, it was really starting from scratch. And I'm not only am I lucky to have, uh, you know, just the internet and library access in general, but I work at an art institution that has an art-specific library on campus. So I had all of these incredible books and periodicals at my fingertips. So that really made research very easy for myself. Uh, so I really love, I always recommend people to go find a library, especially at a university or another institution that's very specific to what they're researching, because those places can be so invaluable. Why do you think that art history is important for modern artists to have a grasp of? Ooh, that's a really good question. I think it's really wonderful to, even if you don't want to necessarily um, emulate a particular artist or a particular style or movement, it's just nice to know where we've come from. I think of it in some ways as a kind of genealogy for artists to just have that background and knowledge of where certain influences have come from or changes or uh, inspirations. So for me, it's just uh, sometimes even just about acknowledging how art has changed over time. And it's also nice to just go back and maybe see what aligns with your making and uh, what you're interested in doing. And as I mentioned, inspiration for me is always part of it. It's going back and looking at an artist or learning about somebody who I don't really know a lot about and then finding this sort of kinship, um, sort of seeing oneself in one's own work in someone else. And that's a really cool, 
cool experience. Mm-hmm. You have your book divided into three sections. The first is the unexpected. The second is the slightly odd. And the third is the strangely wonderful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. Give me some of the highlights of the unexpected section of the book. Yeah. So I based those sections on the tagline of the podcast, which is the same. It's about the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. And for me, I, I think those sections are kind of mutable or movable in some ways, multiple They're very broad, I I suppose I should say, so that multiple stories could fall into either one of those categories. But for me, a lot of them, especially for the unexpected, it's exactly that. Um, The number one story, which is the first chapter in the book, is really based on my own experiences when I was coming up in art history and also when I was a child. And again, I didn't have that much experience with art and art history, but my mom and dad had this poster of a Monet water lilies painting in their bedroom. And so for me, I didn't know who Monet was. I had no idea of the Impressionists. And I just thought, oh, you know, there's pink, there's purple, the colors are pretty, I like it. And it wasn't until much later that I realized that Monet was kind of a big deal. But I didn't understand why. And all I thought was, oh, these are the kind of things that people love to have on their umbrellas and their scarves and their my mom's favorite kind of artwork. And it just seemed so pretty to me. And it wasn't until I was taking art history classes where we dig deeper dives into the Impressionists and talking about Monet and his cohort and learning that they were actually incredibly subversive in their time and that this art that is really almost universally beloved today was considered not only bad straight off the bat, but a lot of people (laughs) thought it was ugly and Mm. that it was really destroying this grandiose history of art. Um, And to me, that was really fascinating because I think that subversive kind of badassery is what I call it, Mm -hmm. has really uh, faded a little bit from our public knowledge. And so I wanted to retell that story because for me, that was sort of a a shock to the system to Mm -hmm. learn how how really independent and kind of strong-willed and really, um, again, subversive these people were because we tend to forget it. I think we focus so much on just the pretty side of a bouquet of flowers and things like that. You know, that really ties into the previous question about why is art history important to modern artists? Because I think many people today, when we would look at a Monet or some of the other Impressionists, it's it's been normalized to us. It, yeah. It's not. It doesn't have that same subversive effect on us as it did in history. But understanding that when this piece came out, that it turned the world on its head because it was so countercultural for the time. Absolutely, and I think that's something that is a, a theme in art in general that I keep coming back to, especially as someone who, in my day job, I focus almost entirely on contemporary art. So I I get a lot of pushback, especially from some of our more traditional artists or members or visitors to a museum who say, you know, I I really don't understand contemporary art. I don't like it. I think it's ugly or I think it's too edgy. And I always tell people I completely understand and you don't have to like it. A, I'm totally okay if you don't like it. Everybody has their preferences and this might not be your thing. But then I always also have to remind people that throughout art history, it's, it's sort of um, an obvious statement, but sometimes it takes a minute for us to remember that all art at one time was contemporary. Mm-hmm. 
And in its own time, a lot of the things that we do take for granted today as masterpieces or these amazing touchstones of art really were very uh, challenging to the status quo or to the art that came before. They were really breaking the norms and were shocking. I did a whole season of the podcast on shock art in this way. So thinking about people like Michelangelo painting in the Sistine Chapel, uh, people like that who really, we, we don't even bat an eye when we talk about the greatness of the Sistine Chapel ceiling. But back then, it was seen as really strange. Wow. Wow. That's so good. <laughs> I love that. I'll have to go back and listen to that season on shock art. That's something that we've, we've talked a lot about in our community and on the podcast. And that actually leads me to another question. Tell me about the slightly odd section of the book. Yeah. What can, we, what can we find there? Oh, this is one of my favorite sections. Uh, the whole impetus behind the podcast, again, I wanted to share these stories about art that I thought were weird or unexpected that you may not have known about, began when I was in college taking these Art History 101 courses, and my professor was talking about the Renaissance and was spending an afternoon talking about the Mona Lisa and why Leonardo is important and what's so great about this painting that everyone in the world knows, even my son, he's five years old. And I think before he was three years old, he could look at a picture and be like, Mona Lisa, it's just <laughs> the world's most famous painting, right? right? And I remember her spending this great amount of time talking about what's so important and the background of the painting, the landscape, and the identity of the sitter, who Mona Lisa is, all this stuff. And then at the very end of her little section on Mona Lisa, she said, yep, and she's at the Louvre today, so next time if you make it over to Paris, make sure you go and you see her. And she paused and then said, oh, but, you know, it's no big deal if you don't make it because the Mona Lisa that's on view is totally fake. And I'm going to tell you why. And she spent, it was probably no more than a minute or two, just roll rolling off the top of her head, just saying, you know, it's been, the work of art has been stolen twice. And the first time it was stolen by noted art forgers. And so I can imagine that they copied it. They didn't send back the original. They couldn't find the original. So the one they have on view is a copy. And she just said everything so quickly. And it seemed like such a conspiracy theory to me. <laughs> and this professor was so level-headed and so even keeled that it just really, you know, stuck with me throughout time. I never forgot this very weird statement she made about Mona Lisa being fake. And so I had the opportunity to remember that story a few years ago. And I thought, this is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. I'm going to dig into <laughs> a little bit more. And once I was reading about the first theft of the Mona Lisa, which happened in 1911, the more I thought, everybody has to read this story. This is so crazy. It really was stolen. It was gone for about two and a half years. They thought that the Mona Lisa would never be found again. It was rediscovered. It was stolen by an Italian man who worked in the Louvre as a contractor who created frames and the, the glazing, the glass on paintings. And so he took Mona Lisa and then hid her in a suitcase under his bed for many years. When it was rediscovered, it of course went back on view and the world became just thrilled. And that was really the point in which Mona Lisa became iconic and world famous. And then a few decades later, there was this article that came out in the Saturday Evening Post, which I think is really interesting, an interesting place for this story to appear, that the author of the of the Post article said that he met the real mastermind over the theft in Casablanca in this little cafe 
and told the story about how he was really the man in charge of the Mona Lisa theft, and he was working with an art forger in France named Yves Chadron, and together they were making millions creating these uh, multiple fake Mona Lisas that were spread out through the world. And it's just one of those stories that just seems weirder and weirder the more you get into it. (laughs) And I kept thinking, even after the point of writing this book and doing the podcast episodes on it, I said, you know, this seems like it's so perfect for a movie. It's just Mm -hmm. cinema ready. And then I found out just a few months ago, I think it was either December or January, that Jodie Foster has a movie in the works Mm. about the theft. So I'm so excited to see that when it comes out eventually. Yeah. It brings to mind a different movie. And unfortunately, I don't think the movie was very good, but the book was good. And it was about art theft. Uh, It's called The Monuments Men. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but I love the story of what of what those soldiers did. Unfortunately, the movie didn't stand up to the story itself. Completely agreed. I am with yeah. you on that one. But you're <laughs> right, the book is really great. And I think mm-hmm. it's one of those things where just talking about these stories about art, I think art gets sidelined a lot of times as being unimportant. You know, it's it's one of those things that is the first thing to cut be cut in schools. It's always cut arts in general, music, theater visual arts before anything else. There's such an emphasis that's placed on science and math. And of course, those are so important. But art and the humanities are equally important. They're just a different side and they connect us. I always say that they they connect us to our past and to our history and to our humanity as much as anything else. And they're equally important to have us connect to this creativity that is really special about us as humans. It's yes. really unique to us. And so having stories like the uh, the stories about the Monuments Men, who people who really understood the importance of cultural artifacts and made it their mission to protect it, I think those are so fascinating and really important for us to hear. Mm-hmm. Now, the the two chapters that I'm really excited to talk with you about One is chapter 11, A Ready-Made Revelation, Mm -hmm. is a German baroness responsible for a Marcel Duchamp masterpiece. And the reason I'm interested in this is because on our artist profile series, we just did a profile on Marcel Duchamp. Oh, nice. Yes, and so I did a lot of research and study on the baroness and on that idea that the fountain was in fact not... Marcel Duchamp's idea. Tell tell us some about this this story. I love it. Yeah. And I have to admit right off the bat that I actually didn't know this story until early last year, early 2019. So this was a new one to me. And it was because I did a, a profile of Duchamp on the podcast. And then someone uh, wrote to me, I believe on Instagram and said, you know, that you're perpetrating this myth about the great Duchamp as the great creator of right. the piece. And I basically said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Right. And it was the same thing. I started digging into the Baroness, who was this German-born artist who came over and was part of this incredible uh, coterie of artists and musicians and creatives who worked in New York as part of this circle, the salon uh, involved with people like Duchamp and Man Ray and Walter Ehrensberg, the collector and poet. And she very much was into these uh, ready-made and collecting items off the street and creating her own sometimes wearable works of art. And a lot of her work doesn't survive because it was very ephemeral. It was really meant to be used in a lot of cases. Like she would wear, you know, these incredible 
necklaces, basically, or she would wear a birdcage on her head, or she would uh, tie vegetables, like wilting vegetables around her neck, things like that, just very (laughs) much playful. Um, So a lot of her work doesn't survive. So she's more well known today as a poet rather than an artist. And it's only in the past few years that people have really been looking at the visual side of her work. And from what we've discovered over the years is that she was really interested in collaborations. And I believe it's the Philadelphia Museum of Art who we recently went back and redesignated one of their works of art as a collaboration between Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven and Morton Schamberg, another sculptor artist who was involved in this, uh, this salon. And so she was very interested and very friendly with Duchamp. It appears that she was also uh, had quite the crush on Duchamp. <laughs> So she was very much in his life. He was very mm-hmm. much in her life. And the thought was that she must have probably done these collaborations with other artists as well. And that that connection to Duchamp seems like a likely one. This has all still not been proven. There's nothing really 100% concrete that can really show either artist. <laughs> I'm right. Least not not <laughs> Elsa von Freitag-Loringhoven. Right. Uh, But it's been something that feminist art historians and people have been coming forward and saying we really should take a closer look at her and seeing that this might be a possibility. So I confess that I probably sort of hedged my bets a little bit. Right, right. (laughs) I admit admit to that. But what it does, though, is it makes me look at this work in an entirely different way. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really interesting. I would love to know. I wish we could say for certain if it was completely, you know, a Duchamp thing or if she was involved in any way either way I think it's completely plausible I don't know again if it's likely 100% but right I'd love to know (laughs) yeah that's kind of the way we handled it in our profile is is we made mention of it but we are just uncertain and and so for our purposes we just went with the traditional view that that it was Duchamp but some of the letters that were written uh, from Duchamp I think to his sister are kind of that's where the questions really come up is is because it seems like he indicates there was someone else involved with it. Exactly. And his words are very, uh, they're not clear. His right. <laughs> explanation, you know, he says to his sister that a, a woman submitted the work. And so there was mm-hmm. thought of, was that <laughs> Elsa von Freitag-Loringhoven? An article came out in late last year, just at the very end of 2019, that posited it could have been another friend of Duchamp's who went in Mm. and submitted the work. And then the question is, is submitted meaning, does submit mean authorship in some way? Does it mean that if somebody came in and dropped off the work for submission for this exhibition, did they also create it or were they just the delivery system, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then others have posited that Duchamp liked this idea of uh, gender performance and some did a little bit of cross-dressing and came up with this idea of an alter ego who was called Eros Celavi, like Eros, love, Celavi, that's life. And so Mm -hmm. there's these famous portraits of himself in the guise of Eros Salavi. <laughs> and so a lot of people have said, you know, oh, he was probably just dressed up in that way. And he was the woman who submitted the work of art. 
But Duchamp was very cagey and didn't really say much about this work of art until later in life in the 30s and 40s when André Breton from the Surrealists came back and said, oh, this is a masterwork and Duchamp made it. And then at that point, Duchamp said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I did that. That was one of my pieces. (laughs) So, again, it's all very Uh loosey-goosey. And I think that's what makes it such a fascinating story. Yes, it is. It is. Again, that would be very cinema ready as well, wouldn't it? Totally. 100%. So filmmakers, yes. get on that. <laughs> That's right. I think for the for the purpose of seeing Elsa and, and some of the very eccentric characteristics of her art, we'll put some pictures up on our Instagram with the post of this podcast so people can see some of her costumes and some of just the, the flamboyance and the outlandish eccentricity of who she was as an artist. She's one of those people that I would say, regardless of the art that she makes, she becomes the art is oh, the way yeah. I see her. <laughs> I There was one of my favorite parts when we were going through the, the revision and the editing process of this book was when I submitted this chapter, my wonderful editor, Meg Leader, she, in one of the comments, you know, like a sidebar comment, she wrote after one description about Elsa, she wrote, oh my God, I love her. And I just wrote her back and said, same, I'm with you. She's just amazing. (laughs) You just, you just, yes, you just catch her personality from the images. You're Uh, you're like, she would be an incredible person to know. I know. I just, Uh, I want to sit down at a party with her and just have her talk for hours. Exactly. Well, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is your chapter called Toenails and Junk Mail, Andy Warhol's Time Capsules. And uh, Warhol is someone else that we've spent some time with on Makers and Mystics just because he's, you know, later on they even found out that he was a bit of a closet Catholic and that he had put his nephew uh, through seminary secretly. And I just found it fascinating, his relationship to the Last Supper and to the Pope. And anyway, he he was a very eccentric character on all levels, but this highlight that you've put about Warhol in your chapter, I'd, I'd love to know more about. Tell me about his toenails and his <laughs> and his junk mail. <laughs> exactly. Yes, this was also another one of my favorite chapters to write. And it's another example of one of those stories that kind of embarrassed me that I didn't know about as an art historian and a curator. Of course, I, I know a lot about Warhol just from living in the world. He's one of those figures that seems to just seep through pop culture and history. But I didn't know that he was this prolific collector who made what he called time capsules since the mid-70s and all the way up to his death in the late 80s. And he started them originally as these sort of storage elements. He got these big storage boxes when he was moving between studio and house and just started filing away things that seemed like they were important. So letters, uh, photos, notes from friends, things like that, just very straightforward. And then as he started getting into it, he had this original goal of creating one box a month and then shipping it away to a storage facility in New Jersey. And he just kept getting so fascinated by it that he started pouring anything and everything into it. And that included things like toenail clippings. Um, (laughs) Very famously, it included some food. And in one case, there was a piece of 
Caroline Kennedy's sweet 16 birthday cake that he somehow <laughs> preserved. And I cannot imagine how, but ended up in the box. Yeah. Um, you know, junk mail, important contracts would go by the wayside and he would just file them away. And there are st- uh, stories of some of his studio assistants needing to find this very important paperwork for art exhibitions and dealers and things like that and having to raid these uh, time capsules because he would just file things away and he didn't want to lose anything. So he would keep it in these time capsules. And so mm-hmm. it was this interesting way of really dealing with this mass of stuff in his life without necessarily throwing it all away, but it would just be very safely and concretely piled away in these time capsules. Mm-hmm. And some of it's very important. Like there are some incredible boxes that are filled with art or ephemera that relate to some of his most important works of art. And then others, which again, just have like newspaper advertisements or again, that junk mail or receipt mm-hmm. for a hat he bought, <laughs> things like that. Um, mm-hmm. They are this fascinating look at the artist in a way that we cannot see from his very public persona and a way that we cannot see from the art itself. It's fascinating how his time capsules really coincide with what we were talking about before with Duchamp and some of the ready-mades and some of these found objects that Elsa would collect in different places. It's very much the same idea in a very Warhol kind of way. Totally. Totally. No, I love that. And I I love that because so much in the last century has changed in terms of what we can deem art. And I get this question a lot as a curator about people wanting to submit particular works for consideration for exhibitions. And I always tell people the lines between art and not art or applied art, fine art, craft and fine art, those things are so blurry now. And that's one of the wonderful things is that you can become this incredible artist by virtue of just your own thoughts and thinking and your way of managing what art can be. Whereas mm-hmm. this, we used to have this intensely strict idea of what art was and that you had to go through years of schooling and apprenticeships and so forth to become an artist. And really, especially in the last century, that has exploded or imploded mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. And Mm -hmm. now so much can be art. And that's really, to me, so wonderful. Yes. And I think that's something that Duchamp helped to foster is taking the understanding of what art is from the realm of craft to the realm of concept. 100%. Absolutely. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me on Makers and Mystics today. I can't wait to get the book into the hands of our listeners and to finish reading it myself. And we'll put a link on our website and in the show notes of this episode where people can connect with you, your work, and also get a copy of the book. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. And thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and leave us a kind review on iTunes. If you'd like to support the production of these podcasts or join our creative collective where we host regular book clubs, online discussions, and offer additional content, you can find us at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. We'll be back again next week, and until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.